We approach our text this morning needing just a little bit of historical information. So let me introduce these verses from Jeremiah 29 by telling you that in the year 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Jerusalem with the intent to destroy all that was holy in this place for our Jewish kin. His army carried off many of the leaders and others who had called Judah their home for generations. They destroyed the temple, they ransacked Jerusalem, and they took the people away in chains. And this was a period of displacement that is known, the season rather, as the exile. It's one of the saddest memories for our Jewish brothers and sisters, our ancestors in the faith. The prophet Jeremiah was watching all of this happen. And he writes specifically to those who were living in Assyria, the Babylonian capital. So hear now the text this morning, selected verses from Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It is said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Then take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back. To this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. That is good news, friends. We are coming out of exile, right? What a great gift and blessing this season is for us here at Faith United Methodist Church. A few uh, weeks ago, you might remember that Pastor Heather and I took a few days away. We went to plan sermons, and one of the questions that we asked ourselves from the very beginning was, what are the words, what are the themes that we feel like the people of Faith United Methodist Church need to hear from this pulpit in the rest of 2021? And there were two words that kept coming up over and over again. The words are hope and healing. We are hopeful for all that God will do, and we know that this is a season of healing, and so that's what you can expect from the rest of the sermons that you'll hear this year. We want to hold to those themes, hope and healing. So we began to go to the scriptures and ask what experience kind of parallels where we have been, maybe then helping us understand where we go, 
and we immediately were drawn to this historical experience of our Jewish brothers and sisters known as the exile. So we felt like that would be the place to start. And today we're going to be telling you sort of the beginning pieces of that story of what it was like to experience exile so that we can begin to identify some parallels in our own lives. Now, I need to tell you that their experience of exile and our experience of pandemic are not the same thing. All right, being asked to stay home to be safe is not the same thing as being carried away from your home in chains. Okay, so I'm not trying to say they're the same thing. I'm just looking for this uh, parallel experiences so that we might learn from them how it is that we come into this phase of rebuilding that we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. We're calling this experience of exile the great disruption because it was certainly that for the Jews. The experience of pandemic has certainly been that for us as well. This disruption forever changed the core identity of God's people who started out as the Hebrew people and then as they uh, wandered through the Exodus experience, they came into the promised land and they became the nation of Israel and here they are now dispersed uh, in places that are no longer their home. And in all of this, we know them simply as the Jews, which is a beautiful and wonderful term. It's a term of, of love and appreciation for what they have given us in our history of faith. Uh, it's not negative at all. It means that we depend upon them. We stand upon their shoulders as, as the ones who identified this faith in Yahweh, creator God, sustainer God. Uh, the one who loved them and loves us as well. So let's go back and, and look at how the Jews had a, a view of God, what their, their view and, of the character and nature of God is. For them, God could be uh, encompassed in two words, rescuer and redeemer. And still, even today, that is how they understand the character and nature of God. And that comes from their lived experiences as a people when they were enslaved in Egypt. And Moses was raised up as a leader and his brother Aaron to go and say to the Pharaoh, and we learned this in Faithcation. You remember what, what uh, Moses was to say? Anybody? What? Ashley. Did you hear that? Let my people go. Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, eventually, there's a lot to that story that we're kind of passing over this morning. But eventually, Pharaoh did let them go. And as they wandered in the desert for 40 years, initially, they were led by the very presence of this God who loved them enough to rescue them and to redeem them. They were led by, and we learned this too also in Faithcation, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The very presence of the Almighty God went ahead of them and made a way for them. Shortly after their experience of being released to wander around in the desert, God gave them instruction about how it is that they are to build a home for God where they would go and worship God, and that was the tabernacle. It was a portable home because as they wandered, they would pack the t tabernacle up together, take it with them to their next place, and that was the first thing they set up, and they would offer their uh, sacrifices to this God, Yahweh, who loved them enough to care for them, to be the presence that leads them, and uh, to sustain them. 
Those sacrifices were animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, and it was a way for them to express the covenantal relationship that they had with this God. And the tabernacle then entered with them into the promised land, and David, King David, was the one who moved it to Jerusalem, which became the capital, kind of the seat, if you will, of of Judaism in that day and time, particularly when the monarchy was united. And and Jews would come from all over to worship, particularly in the high holy days, about three times a year, Jews would come and they would worship in this space together, making their sacrifices or having the priest make those sacrifices on their behalf so that they could express their faithfulness and their love for God. But this is the part we have to all remember, friends, that whether it be the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire or then the tabernacle or then the temple, which was built by Solomon, which became the permanent structure, that was where God lived. The very presence of God Almighty was in that place. So imagine, imagine how you feel as a people who thought you were in covenantal relationship with this God, when a foreign power invades Jerusalem in 587, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, they come into Jerusalem and they raise the temple to the ground, absolutely destroy it. And you know what was in the temple? All of their holy things, right? All of the things that symbolize right? The power of God to them. And that was carried off as loot. Can you just imagine what that would do to your faith in God? It was an existential crisis for them. They turned to each other and they asked the question, is Yahweh this God who has been with us and and been present with us in all of these places and all of these ways, is that God dead? Are we dead? What's going to happen? How could this ever be redeemed? And at least initially, the scriptural witness is that their response to each other was, it's all lost. It's all gone. Because even if they were released from their captors and they came back to this place, you know what's there? Nothing. I mean, there was no way. They couldn't go back, friends. There was no way for them to enter that place again, that holy place. Their grief was so immense that literally it threatened to steal their faith in God. Perhaps... You've had an experience like that with grief in your life where your experience of loss has been so deep that it threatened to steal your faith in God. Now imagine if everyone around you is experiencing that same deep loss so that it's not just your loss, it's everyone's loss corporately, kind of like in a pandemic Where it's not just your own experience of that. Everyone is going through this experience together for sure. It would be a disruption. In this particular season, one of the psalmists penned an an emotional diary of this experience of grief. It's Psalm 137. 
So I'm going to go ahead and read this for us. You'll see the words come up on the screen. But this is so powerful, the way the psalmist expresses this experience of corporate grief. Alongside Babylon's rivers, we sat on the banks. We cried and cried, remembering the good old days in Zion. Alongside the quaking aspens, we stacked our unplayed harps, and that's where our captors demanded songs, sarcastic and mocking. They said, sing us a happy Zion song. Come on. You can do it. Oh, how could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? If I ever forget you, Jerusalem, let my fingers wither and fall off like leaves. Let my tongue swell and turn black if I fail to remember you. If I fail, oh dear Jerusalem, to honor you as my greatest. And God, remember those Edomites. Remember the ruin of Jerusalem. That day they yelled out, wreck it, smash it to bits. And you, Babylonians, ravagers, a reward to whoever gets back at you for all you've done to us. Yes, a reward to the one who grabs your babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. There are no words after that, friends. It is possible that we could spend the rest of our sermon together on those last two lines. Several have preceded me in that task, so I'm not going to engage it. I'm probably not qualified to, but I can tell you this. When people go through experiences of corporate grief, it is very natural for them to look for an enemy, for someone to blame, and then to seek vengeance wherever they can, because for whatever reason, anger gives us a feeling of sort of being back in control. And so, can we just say that corporately, the Israelites, as they were now scattered away from their homeland, and there's nothing really to go back to, that they're that angry at the ones that they assumed had taken that from them. And we might share their experience as well. What I want to focus on this morning in reading Psalm 137 for you is there's this movement in Psalm 137 between we've lost it all and we can't forget. The understanding that they had is there's nothing to go back to. And we're angry about it. We don't want to experience where we are. We don't want this to be our reality. We have lost it all, and yet we cannot forget. Oh, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my fingers fall off like leaves and wither. Let my tongue swell and become black if I fail to remember you, Jerusalem. It's the experience of being stuck in grief for those of you who know grief, you're acquainted with its ways. Do you know the experience of being stuck in grief? Where you know that if you forget that which you have lost, it feels as if you're forgetting your very self. That you will be lost as well in sort of the, the tornado of your grief. And yet, 
as you remember that, the chasm that you look into is so painful, you feel like that might swallow you. And so you know, you know your loss, and you know you can't forget, and you kind of get stuck right there. That's a normal, natural experience for people who are going through grief, and that's where this people, a whole corporate group of people, they were stuck in this grief. Forgetting for them was a cost too high, and yet they felt as if they would lose themselves when they remembered Jerusalem, for it was a constant stare into what was gone for them. The virtual Jewish library describes the experience of the exile like this. Their defeat and the loss of the land promised to them by Yahweh seem to imply that their faith in Yahweh's promise was misplaced. You think? Yeah. This crisis, which they call a form of cognitive dissonance, That's a big, sterile word. You know what it means? The way I'm experiencing reality and every bit of uh, income or uh, input that I'm receiving, not the same thing. What I think is happening and what I see is really happening, not the same thing. And it causes, within us, it causes an angst. We call that cognitive dissonance. I don't know how to make sense of this. This is the way I want reality to be, and this is the way reality is. Uh Uh-oh, right? And so they name this crisis of the exile, they name it cognitive dissonance. And what the author has said is that cognitive dissonance or this crisis can precipitate the most profound despair or the most profound reworking of a worldview. It can elicit that kind of feeling of I'm being sucked down into this abyss of despair. And, or, depending, right, it can also mean that in that moment, your worldview can be reworked. You can take the pieces that are lost to one another and begin to bring them back in a new and beautiful way. And what the author says from the virtual Jewish library is, for the Jews in Babylon, it did both. It did both. It was the great disruption. I want to lift for us this morning three parallels between the experience of the exile for them, the experience of pandemic for us. And again, remember, I'm not saying these are the same thing. I'm just trying to draw out some of the parallels that we see in the experience so that we might learn from them because they did, in fact, rebuild. It was different, very, very different. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at their rebuilding. Today, we look at this experience of disruption for them. For them, worship moved from a site to homes and small gatherings. So remember that before the exile, if you were a Jew, there was one place you went to worship God, and that was the temple, because that's where God lived. And after the temple has been destroyed, and you have been scattered as a people all over that part of the world, What is worship then? How do you do that? And so first, they they did it in family groups. Eventually, they began in all of these towns and cities where they lived to gather by the river, which is why Psalm 137 reflects, there by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. And they would just go to the river on the Sabbath day and see what other Jews would come, and they would read their holy, holy words together, the words of the prophet of the prophets, the words of the law, the Torah, 
And they would share those words back and forth together because that's all they knew to do. Hmm. For us, before the pandemic, we kind of counted on being able to come here for worship. You knew that whatever you were going to do on the weekend, you could come here on Sunday morning and worship would be here for you. And not only that, your peeps, right? You get to see your peeps in the hall or eating donuts, oh my goodness, right? Or in Sunday school, you know, and you'd be like, okay, that's awesome. I need that, right? There's a hunger inside of me that needs to be filled for worship. And here it is. And we became attached to worship belonging to a site. But then it had to move to homes and small gatherings. And that was hard. And it was hard for them, too. Another parallel that we see uh, between their experience and ours is how worship shifted from being corporate in nature to sort of an individual or family experience. Jewish worship before the exile leaned into this experience of the throngs that would come to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the high holy days. I don't know if you've ever been a part of, of something that is just bigger than you are. Remember when we used to go to concerts or, or large group gatherings, you know, or um, that where the inauguration had throngs of people that would come to Washington, D.C. And if you've ever experienced large group gatherings like that, you know that you can kind of be carried away into that experience. Well, such was the case for the Jews. They would always go to Jerusalem, and they knew that that experience of being sort of carried into the holy city and the throngs of people for the high holy celebrations was going to deliver them into the very presence of God. The gift of strength and numbers could, could offer them that experience. After the exile, though, they could no longer depend upon the, the strength and commitment of the group. Instead, they had to generate it on their own. I've heard from many of you reflect how hard that was. That being able to be here with your people, corporately, joined together, it's just not the same online, you would tell me. Or I just, I don't know what's going to happen to my Sunday school class, but you know, that, that's where I had fellowship. That's where I had connection. Those were my friends. And that was the case for them too. Their worship shifted, it had to, from this sort of corporate nature to an individual nature or even, you know, family experience. Finally, the other uh, parallel that I would note for us this morning is that the rituals of mourning were displaced. Before the exile, every Jew wanted to be buried in the homeland because that, they, there they would be close to their ancestors and the worshiping community. I don't know if you all have experienced this, but even here in the United States, sometimes people will be buried a long way from where they live, but it's where they grew up, or it's where their families are buried. And that's a, that's a gift to the family whenever they can gather in that place that has meaning to them and bury their loved one. But after the exile, it wasn't possible for the Jews. Families and loved ones were robbed of the one bit of comfort they might find in a time of grief. I wonder, you know, this time next year or in five years from now, what we will look back on during the season of pandemic and note as the saddest part of that for us. This was the hardest part. And I wonder for me, it will be the loss of funerals 
There were so many people in our congregation who passed during that particular season, and we could not gather here or anywhere for their service. It was so hard for family members who wanted to gather, even when there would be a service of some kind, but they knew that they were risking their very life and health by coming together. And what about the funeral dinners? Oh, that's one of my favorite things. That sort of potlucky thing we do, you know, after the service, everybody gathers, and you put out this dish from that person and that dish from another person. You go down the line, and everybody gets a big plate of food, and then they sit around, they tell stories, and they laugh. And they remember all of the good things about that person. And we couldn't do that. And what a loss that was for us at a time when people were dying so rapidly that our funeral homes could not keep up, we had no way to be present with one another and share with them God's presence. So can you see that this was an experience of disruption, both for those Jews who were in exile and for us in the season that we're calling recovery, right, or rebuilding, coming back and trying to understand who we are now when everything that we knew has changed. It's just changed. Disruption is hard. And most of the time, it is forced on us. You know why? Because we would never choose it. <laughs> we would never choose to have to go through that kind of meat grinder experience and understand what on the other side what is this i don't know i don't recognize it what is this but you also know that disruptions in life when given the room to do their shaping work also result in a better tomorrow you've seen that happen in your own lives in the lives of those you love when they're forced into that place where they have to change if they allow it, that change can be a beautiful gift for them in the way that it reshapes their life. And so here we are in a, new, in a new phase. And what I would offer to us this morning, because this is what I learned from the Jews in the exile, is that actually the experience of pain and loss, as hard as it is, might actually be sort of the North Star, right? That, that that experience can now lead us into a way of rebuilding something that is new and is authentic to the reality that we are in together now. So what I want to say to you, friends, as we get ready for the next couple of weeks, uh, next week we're going to talk about the return, what it felt like when they came back, and then following we'll talk about rebuilding. What, what was their rebuilding phase? So here's what I want you to know today. Get your hopes up. Okay, Because what we have been through, as painful and as difficult as it is, there is life after that. Amen? Amen. And we're going to find it together. We'll see how this disruption led the Jews to rebuild the future that Jeremiah was promising in this uh, word this morning. I don't know about you, but the, the phrase, or the, the phrase, the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, that's always been one of my favorites. I don't know if anybody else shares my, my love for that. But it's important that you understand the context into which he speaks it. Right? And so this morning, 
because we've been in the exile. I want us to share this verse together. We we read it with me. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. That's where we're headed. Amen.